0: Thank you everyone for tuning into another episode of the Mbit Podcast, and I'm your host, Seamus Madan. I started this podcast at 15 years old in December of 2020 to bring personal finance education to the next generation. Now, I am 16 years old, and the podcast has evolved to interviewing entrepreneurs, VCs, GPs, and founders of public companies, all of which are designed to delve into insights that have not been shared elsewhere for the next generation of those interested in business. Recently, I ventured into the VC space as a venture fellow at Blitzscaling Ventures, which is backed by the co-founder of LinkedIn. And I'm interviewing those farther along in their journey to learn more on everything that I and the audience is curious about. If any of the above sounds interesting to you, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. And now back to the show. So today, we have two very special guests, Hunter Walk, the founding partner at Homebrew, and Kate Beardsley, the GP of Hannah Gray, an early-stage VC fund revolving around investing in customer-centric founders. So first off, Hannah and Hunter, thank you for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you both here today. Thanks so much. I want to I wanna amend
1: that. Kate is also one of the founding partners of Hannah Gray. They are the Homebrew of 10 years later. Kate and her partner, <laughs> Jessica, are doing amazing things, and, and Satya and I are excited to collaborate with them.
0: Absolutely. Great to have you both on. So Hunter, let's start off with you. You first led consumer product management at YouTube, starting when it was acquired by Google back in 2003. And your first job in Silicon Valley, you did some product management for Second Life or Linden Labs. And for those yeah, of you- the, who the
1: original Metaverse, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. For the, those of you don't the know- Metaverse is all hot. Back then, my mother-in-law didn't understand why I was a female <laughs> avatar running around in some weird virtual world.
0: Yeah, and for those of you, in the audience that don't know, Second Life was founded like over a decade ago. It was like the first version of the metaverse before all the meta and VR stuff today, and it still actually exists. And they, I think they have like a half a million active users. They got it's kind of crazy the audience they've built up and continue to sustain. But would you mind walking through your background and how you became interested in venture?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm 48. So when I was coming out of undergrad and stuff like that, especially growing up in the East Coast, like I didn't know much about. Roles in tech companies, but I knew that interesting stuff was happening. I happened to had the good fortune of being on a college campus, '91 through '95. Many of you weren't probably born then, but it was the world was around. But people still had like dial-up internet, like Wi-Fi wasn't around yet. But I essentially had a time machine. Being on campus during that period of time was like a time machine because you got a high-speed connection, you got an email address, you had campus-wide chat, you had the beginnings of a browser. It wasn't even was pre-Mosaic, but it was like you could surf. Early websites, and so you essentially, I got to peer into the future and be like, "Oh my God, this like five to ten years from now, this is what everyone's going to be doing," and that got me very excited about, I guess, what you'd call today is the creator economy—the idea that everybody has the power to be creative, and the most amazing things aren't only going to come from Hollywood backlots or record company recording studios, so on and so forth. I saw technology really as a way for people to create, create together, and then earn money from their creations if they so desired, and so that led me to about a twelve-year quote-unquote operating career, mostly in product management. You mentioned Second Life. I was sort of the first non-engineer on that early team and part of an effort to help get that product built and launched. I was there for about three years. And after that, I joined Google, where I sort of had two roles over the course of a decade. First, I was working on AdSense, which I saw as the monetization vehicle for, let's call it like the text and image creator economy, right? People were building webpages, blogging, so on and so forth. And back in that day, Like You couldn't make money off that unless you used really bad banner ads or pop-ups or pop-unders. And all of a sudden, Google said, hey, there's this thing called contextual advertising. Let's go. That's also where I met Sacha, So it was a really important moment that led to Homebrew. At the same time, I was sort of, if anything, I've been somewhat lucky to sort of be able to see slightly into the future, I guess, Time Machine or not. And I started to get really excited about video, was working on some video stuff at Google. Then the YouTube acquisition happened. And it became clear that that's where the center of gravity was going to be. And I unintentionally got myself transferred over there. I tried to just transfer some projects to Chad and Steve. And instead, they said, why don't you come over here? And that led to an amazing five years with the team, growing the team, and hitting a bunch of very interesting milestones, a billion users, all that type of stuff. I got a little bit burnt out on operating. I love product management. It turns out I love product, but I don't necessarily love management. And you sort of get promoted to your level of unhappiness, so to speak. And so I was going to leave and sort of take a year to just kind of polymath a little bit. Angel invest, continue to build side projects, but not necessarily know what I was going to do. And then Sacha, who I had stayed in touch with after he left Google and we always wanted to work together again, wonderfully left Twitter where he'd been running product. And in the end of 2012, we decided to talk about what we might want to do together. Neither one of us were thinking about doing venture, but when we started with... uh, a blank calendar and started talking about how we wanted to spend our time together and what we could imagine doing for the next 20 years. The idea of working with a small number of founders who are building, mission-driven founders, building the types of things that they had the insights into, right? So some, some investors say, oh, I want to invest in the types of things that I would want to work on. For us, it was almost completely the opposite in the sense of most of the amazing companies being built today shouldn't be built by such and myself. They should be built by people who have some connection to the problem, but maybe we can be a force multiplier for them. And so once we wanted to do that, basically, we just had to come up with a business model. And so venture became the business model to enable the operating model, as opposed to the other way around, where I think people sometimes think about, I want to be a venture capitalist. Okay, how do I practice that? We sort of said, how do we want to spend our time? And what's the right, what's the thing that helps both founders and ourselves? And so we started that late 2012 or 2013. And here we are talking today.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned how when you first went to college, you were starting to explore the internet. I know when my dad was telling me the story the other day, he had one of the first 15 email addresses for his initials. It's crazy how they were actually pretty early to that internet revolution. But so, Kate, you led special projects with Martha Stewart back in the day. After that, you became chief of staff at Huffington Post to then being a founding member of the early stage VC firm, Lara Hippo, which is based in New York City. What was your pivotal point to switch into VC and why start your own fund?
2: First, thanks for having me. This is just really (laughs) exciting to be here with you both. And I think I came into venture at a time where there was this shift from... Conventional path to VC, which everyone argues they don't have a conventional path now. So I think that's what's happened is it's opened up to sort of anyone can be a contributor to the investing world, which I think is incredibly important to the support structure we're looking for to the next generation of entrepreneurs, because they also have alternative paths to becoming entrepreneurs. So there is this matchmaking and identification happening. I was... One of very few women coming into the New York tech scene in 2008, which is when I sort of got my foot into technology. I was moving away from older media. Martha Stewart, Living Omnimedia, was a 20 or 30 year old company at the time that I joined. So I was sort of like the younger end of the staff and it was in a, and already IPO'd and then went back private. It was sort of an interesting time for that business. But the idea that content could kind of permeate into multiple verticals and the verticalization of that. And then I sort of moved over to the Huffington Post, which had the verticalization of separate content. So seeing how digital technology support could really elevate content in a different way. In New York, there's this question in 2008, uh, 2009, is what's New York technology going to be good at? Because Boston was... The ecosystem hub on the East Coast, and Hunter knows this from being an East Coast person as well, is there was sort of, you had to go to San Francisco to be relevant. But New York was starting to have permeations and permutations of what was going to show up. And so something that was certainly showing up was content, fintech, and consumer products. And being, I would say, just a female consumer, millennial I had a lot of directly relevant experience of what I was interested in buying that mattered to the companies we were starting to evaluate at Hippo. So one of the first investments we did was Venmo. One of the second or third investments we did was Warby Parker, which led to a number of sort of Warby spinoffs, the Warby of this, the Warby of that, like Birchbox, Bobble Bar, Glossier. We were doing content like Buzzfeed. So it was just a really interesting time to be a part of an emerging fund and an emerging market in an emerging sector. And it was it was wonderful because I was on a very supportive team where everyone's voice mattered. And I also got to learn the entire, I would say, full stack operations of how to run a venture fund from day one, turning from angel investing into an institutionally backed fund, which arguably is is not a skill set most people have gone through. But to be able to do it I mean, we raised a fund almost every single year for three years. So it was just this rinse and repeat. And then I joined another small fund called Galvanized Ventures. So I was doing it again for the fourth time. And that kind of, I would say, experience just led me to have the confidence to say, I know how to build a firm. It's just always, of course, the question of, are we going to be good at this? Are we going to find the great companies? And we think we can now that Jessica and I have been in the industry long enough to be backing repeat entrepreneurs who started something in 2008, 2009, and they're back again for the sort of second or third journey. And we have those relationships from 10 plus years ago, plus a decade's worth of experience on watching technology evolve. And I think the only thing, one of the great things I learned from Ken Lear was that he would always draw just on his experience. Like, well, have I seen this before? Have I seen these sort of economic shifts before? And that's something that I feel like I'm now, I'm going to date myself, but I'm 40. So not much younger than Hunter. And I've had enough work experience under my belt to be able to see certain trends come back around again. So I think that that's part of the perspective we have. Jessica and I having the confidence to start our own fund.
0: And when we speak of venture capital strategy, earlier contrarian is a strategy that Hunter, you employ over at Homebrew. What's your process like when finding companies and industries that people are ignoring? And what are some of the spaces that people are overlooking right now that they probably shouldn't be?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, we got really lucky early on. We were coming out of an operating environment and people thought, well, hey, you guys are going to do social media and ad tech because we were at and video because we were at YouTube and Twitter. And actually we're like, well, we're kind of tired about thinking about that stuff. <laughs> and frankly, we're, we've been so inside the beast that like we'd probably be pretty average investors in that area. We were too backwards looking, right? We had helped build the last generation of successful products. And I think you need a sometimes an innovator's eye or a beginner's eye. And so we sort of talked to, he we said, well, what, what are the things that we actually think are going to happen next? And some of those weren't necessarily lived experiences, but like you started to see kind of predictably what would happen when software hit an industry, right? When software hits an industry, data that before was unavailable, fragmented, or dated would sort of become broadly available, Cleaner, more detailed, and real time, or services that were complex, expensive, or needed to be custom built would become cheaper, easier to use, so on and so forth. And so, a bunch of hypotheses like that led us into SaaS, FinTech, and so on and so forth, and led to some early investments in companies like Plaid and Chime, Gusto. And so, you know, you start to sort of prove you're right, and then you get this compounding brand effect where just because you made some early bets like Cruise in the autonomy space, like we knew about autonomy because from my time at Google. We had some belief about what software could do. But why did we invest in that company? We invested in that company because Kyle, um, the CEO, if, if if you if you knew him or you got to him and he wanted to tell you what he was working on, he sent you a password-protected video of him driving down from San Francisco to YC demo day in an after-modeled Audi with the first generation <laughs> of cruise technology where he could take his his hands his hands off the wheel and his feet off the pedals for stretches on the highway. Right. So it wasn't just cruise control. It was like I am driving and I'm not doing anything. Like when you see a video like that, like you invest, right? But then all (laughs) of a sudden people are like, oh, you were early early to self-driving cars. We knew though that quickly as that space heated up, and I think this is what's really important as an early stage investor, like that unless we wanted to go deep in specific, let's say a component of self-driving cars, like LIDAR or something, that very quickly the large funds were going to bid up, overfund sort of all the companies in the space. And all of a sudden as an early stage investor, that's no longer where you should be playing. There's plenty of funds who want to just be shadow investors to the larger funds. Hey, look, we co invest alongside Andreessen, alongside Sequoia, so on and so forth. Like, you can make money doing that if you get access and there's no adverse selection there. But, like, Satya and I didn't want to be get other people's crumbs. We wanted to sort of find things that we thought would be the next generation of important companies and then help bring those companies to the larger funds when they were ready. And so, something like Cruise led us to an investment in a company called Shield, which is doing autonomy and applied AI for Department of Military first responders type of stuff. Back in when we invested in this seven, eight, nine years ago, it was quite contrarian because A, people still thought the government was a terrible customer. Turns out that actually had to sell to the government. They're an amazing customer. B, people thought DJI was owning the drone market because there had been sort of the crash of a lot of people kind of building their own hardware. We're like, a, S.H.I.E.L.D. Is, is, is not pioneering their own drone hardware. They're building off-the-shelf stuff. And B, if you think the government is going to buy Chinese drones for highly sensitive purposes, right. you're crazy. <laughs> so we sort of anticipated some of sort of that conflict. And third, we knew from our experience in Cruise and elsewhere that like there's only a really small num- like, number of people who know how to do this stuff. And most of them are locked inside of Apple, Google, Tesla, places like Cruise, Uber at the time. And so... The fact that that talent lives elsewhere, who can compensate them highly, and the fact that like some people don't get or don't understand what it means to or take the same pride in working for a company that's going to serve government. That like if you could get a small collection of people who did that and they could they were mission driven, started by two brothers, one of them was a Navy SEAL. Like you could actually build quite a quite a pocket of talent, a very unique proposition for people who want to work on these sorts of companies. Long story short, they just closed a last round. They're a multi-billion-dollar company. The the last generation of You know, major government contractors, sort of military providers have always been built off step function changes in technology, right? So rocket and jet engines were the sort of the Boeings, the Northrop Grumman, so on and so forth. And we think that like applied AI, ML autonomy is going to be the next set of, you know, 50 billion to $200 billion government contractors. And so stuff like that I think is the homebrew story, right? It's sort of, you start with a nugget, you start with an insight about what happens when technology hits a vertical. You decide if that's a, a vertical or industry that calls to you in some way, right? We can say no to a bunch of things even if they have large TAMs or interesting startups because we can't be all things to all people. And then you try to take a bet on things that are either kind of going to be misunderstood for a few years. Like I always tell the startups we back, like it's fine for you to be misunderstood up until the series B. Like if you do what we think you can do, like we can fund you now and we can get your A raised. But by the series B, you have three to five years to sort of like be right about where this market is going. And those are the places where as an early stage fund, if you own 5%, 10%, 15% of those companies versus owning less than 1% of a seed round that's at a $200 million or $100 million cap, that's where you make your money. That's where you return a fund, not just you know once over, but five to 10x over with a single investment. And so that's kind of been our, our strategy.
0: Gotcha. It kind of reminds me of, I was talking to Tim Draper earlier this week, and it kind of reminds me of his strategy was separating out his fund into a bunch of different categories, like three or four categories. And then he'd have this other category. And that other category ended up being Tesla, which was autonomous Uh cars. And then it would be, or electric cars. And then it ended up being Hotmail and all their big hits, which is kind of funny. But so Kate, your fund is focused on founders who are focused on the customer. Now, these days, this can be especially or, or very easy for startup founders to get trapped into the notion that they have to continue to raise more capital and their end goal and time ends up revolving around how to please investors for more capital instead of focusing on the customer. Now, although back in the day when Cisco acquired Webex, they weren't focused on raising money, they did lose sight of their customer. And when Eric Yuan, who now is the CEO of Zoom, was former VP at Cisco brought up the idea of rewriting the core code to be compliant with the mobile revolution and be more customer friendly, Cisco just ignored him. But being very driven at heart, he went to solve his customers problems and build Zoom. If he never asked Webex users their experiences, he might have never come across the issue in the first place. So how can founders work to keep their customer at the center of the decision making over things like raising more and more capital?
2: Yeah, I thought Your example is a great one because I think Zoom was obviously largely propelled by a post-COVID environment. So we, like, as Hunter was just talking about market timing, I think this is the number one thing that you can't manufacture as a startup is you can obviously hope that things come together, but market timing is the thing that you really have to consider. And oftentimes, even if it's a B2B product, you have to do the layers analysis around who's going to be your user and what's the frequency and are there forcing functions that can be in your favor or pushed on to be able to sort of have a deeper experience, arguably from a five to 10 year span of that technology. We're in a creative vintage right now post COVID. So there's a whole other disruption channel uh, around a number of things. So I think looking at the customer and the customer's needs and how those have shifted both on the B2B side, both on the consumer side, either as a patient, an employee, a student, what is the framework that is being moved around in real time that could be considered. So it's a very weird creative shift in that the technology, I feel like, is scrambling to go find the solves for the ecosystem that has shifted underneath versus what Hunter was just describing is oftentimes you, you hope you have the time to develop and think about a thesis and look at these nuggets and these indications of saying like, if the winds shift this way, then this adoption could be possible. But I think we just lived through something that was very dramatic and and adjusted life. So I think for us, We certainly aim because we're pre-seed and seed investors to have a relationship with our founders that are very customer obsessed at this stage. They have to be otherwise, there's really nothing to work with through the later stage. If they don't have good insights into their customer, I just can't imagine they would be successful at fundraising given where we start. And then of course you can't lose sight of your customer as you achieve growth funding because ultimately that will show you where if you are successful someone's coming up behind you who's also listening to the same customer set and could very well start with a feature that balloons into a new business model that ultimately you could ignore, as you were just describing in your example of Cisco and Zoom. It's just kind of a constant that has to exist. And oftentimes it's a bit of a red flag for us if a founding team is somewhat outsourcing customer experience this early when we're meeting them, because oftentimes it's two individuals and an idea and a hope and a prayer. So I just think you need to stay close with ultimately that feedback loop as long as possible, because that will give you insight into, is this a lifestyle business? Because that's really sometimes what we're evaluating versus a true venture-backable business that has legs to change a market.
0: I agree. It also allows you to connect with your customers on a level that might've not been possible before. Like it's really important to consistently stay with your customers, understand what their pain stakes are and what they're not. And speaking of the Zoom story, back when Cisco was starting to think about Eric Wan and he brought the idea, Cisco was actually planning on creating an enterprise version of Facebook, which obviously didn't go so well. And it turns out it's always better to stay focused on the customer and keep them at the forefront. But Hunter, you spent 12 plus years operating with companies like YouTube, Google, and Second Life. And at a talk at launch with Megan Quinn, now COO of antic was spending time in operations before delving into VC, but ended up going back in ops. So after spending so much time in the nuts and bolts of businesses, do you miss and have you ever thought about going back into the operations part or product part of a startup?
1: Great question. In fact, Megan was a colleague during our Google days And good friend and, um, and I think she's an amazing investor, but I think she's actually an even better operator in the world benefits from people who are great operators actually staying operators for as long as possible. They're the ones who are builders. In my case, the answer is no. I I don't miss it for a day. I don't wish I did venture any earlier. I wasn't ready for it. And I also, it's unclear. I don't want to say I'm good at it now, but whatever I am now, I wasn't, I w- I would, I'd be less than that years ago. And so for me, it was sort of the right time, but also very much the right person and situation. I wasn't Looking to do professional investing, institutional investing, otherwise, I, and I still couldn't see myself being part of a larger fund or doing it on my own. So it's very much a byproduct of doing it with Sacha. I think people who are operators turned investors, you have to make that transition knowing a few things. First, if you're motivated, if you're like I'm a product person, and this investing is like working on a bunch of products at the same time, how awesome is that? Like that's not your job, and that's not what it is. If you have pangs of operating, if you're worrying about oh, did I have one more left in me? You should go do that one more, right? Like you can't dip your toe in venture decide whether you like it or not especially at the partnership level like you have to go in knowing you might like it you might not like it it might be the right firm it might not. Be, but like with the goal of essentially saying like i am starting to build a reputation a skill set to be successful in venture and that's what i'm going to do i had burned out a little bit like i said i had sort of reached this challenge finding myself at sort of a, a, a level of responsibility where there were aspects of it that i really enjoyed but i didn't love the people management, the, the politics of it. And I knew that, that um, unless I could embrace that, um, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be a great CPO. I certainly wouldn't be a great CEO. And, and we joked at homebrew, we were a small team. So we at any given time, we've only had a few employees, but they all work for Sacha, right? Like I am like, <laughs> my dream is to not have anybody reporting to me ever again. I want to be a great mentor, a great coach. I want to take responsibility, shared responsibility for people's success, but I, but I don't want to do the people management side of it. So like I was pretty much done. Um, to be honest, I think Satya, you I know, mean, not to speak for him, but I think if for some reason homebrew had stopped in its after a year or two, I'm pretty sure he would have gone back to operating. Like I, I think that he may have had sort of a little bit more of that left in him. Although obviously with similar decision framework and decision set of like, okay, we're getting married, we're doing we're doing homebrew. And so for the most part, people I know who leave operating go into venture and then boomerang back, it's sort of one of two things. It's either they chose the wrong firm. And that sort of colors them on what venture is. And so they sort of step out for a while maybe to return later. Or they had one more go in them, and they sort of realize it's only when they sort of stepped out of working as a team, building hands hands- on with a product like they find that they love it. So they usually end up starting something, going back to their old employer, going into one of their portfolio companies, strangely sometimes. <laughs> and And that's fine too. Like I, I don't put venture on a pedestal as a career. Like I think it's it's an investment. Type. It's great for entrepreneurs. They should have it available to them. But like for me, I'm doing this because I think it's the best way for me to move from like doing to helping in some structured way that other investors and founders understand. And I think binds binds the the sort of shared outcomes, right? Like I don't want to, I'm not a consultant. I don't want to get paid for giving advice. I'm not just an advisor. I don't want common shares to just show up every while and make connections. Like I want to take a much lower salary at the end of the day that I was making before. But if you build a company that you're proud of and it succeeds economically, then I get to share in that outcome for having put up some capital and, and hopefully being useful along the way. And for me, there's a purity of that. I don't forget I'm an investment manager. I don't forget I'm a salesperson. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I want the founders to be back to build companies they're proud of. And our bet is is that we've selected the right people working in the right markets, that those companies are also going to be quite valuable, rather than sort of thinking about that the other way around. Like, how can I get to a return no matter what, no matter who I'm working with, no matter how or what they're building, or no matter what my relationship is with those people over time? We're very, very sort of input focused to get the right outputs rather than starting with the outputs.
0: Gotcha. And venture capital has been very hot recently, especially in 2021. There's been a lot of records set for the VC space. But when do founders know whether to raise venture capital, bootstrap, or employ other fundraising methods for the company?
2: I really think it kind of stems from what Hunter is talking about or understanding your deep desire and long-term needs. Venture capital has become a term that's entered the zeitgeist that College students now understand what it's a career choice. Entrepreneurship is now a career choice, which wasn't the case when Hunter and I were in college and making our career choice decisions. So I think there's a there's an attractiveness to the category because of headlines. And there's sort of a new hero system based on entrepreneurs that I think is probably quite attractive to anyone trying to figure out how they want to spend their time and what they want to invest their energies into. I do think you have to peel the layers back though on your business idea and again this comes from talking to the customers which we talked about before and understanding the the size of the market opportunity, right? Venture capital is a very unique financing mechanism that's has expectations in its own business model. And so I would say before you take anyone's money outside of your own and bootstrap, you would probably spend a good amount of time or you should spend a good amount of time understanding the needs of the capital that you're asking for. Because there's, I think, the biggest misalignment when entrepreneurs, especially at the early stage, are talking about wanting to take venture capital and understanding what the promises that we've made to our investors and what that looks like coming back to them. And the expectation, I wrote a note to an entrepreneur earlier this week, talking about our return cycle expectations and IRR management, just Because they ask more leading questions of like, I don't understand the time horizon you're discussing, but there's a limitation to this. And there's also an expectation of the financial returns that Hunter mentioned before. So, and also there's expectation of selling your company, right? I know it's sort of exciting to be able to fundraise, but it also doesn't talk about the dilution that you just took, that you're giving away a portion of your company. It's an honor to be a participant and sit on the cap stack from our perspective, but it's also very much you're now inviting other opinions and other expectations into the performance of your business. And so you really have to do the reference checks, really understand who's coming in and make sure that you're aligned on the goals because different capital now has different expectations. I would say years ago, decades ago, venture capital had sort of a unified expectation of everyone was sort of in the same goal of IPO or bust, or that was the considered result. And now there's a whole host of other kind of multiples in the capital stack because private equities come in and there's just a lot more of, variant participants with their own goals and agenda. So bottom line, before you decide you're going to dilute yourself and your co-founders, understand who's out there, what type of capital. I mean, it it really is an education. and, And you'll only be able to negotiate in those meetings much better if you understand where they're coming from, because you'll have an advantage and more leverage in those conversations too.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. It's so hard. Look, VCs don't know which companies are venture backable or not. Right. If we did all our, all our investments would be successful, but yeah. <laughs> at the early stage, we invested in a bunch of things that turned out to not have been venture-backable, right? It didn't work. And obviously there's a finer grain of looking at it. There are certain circumstances where you're like, okay, this was venture-backable, but it didn't work. Like mm-hmm. failure, isn't, failure does not equal not venture-backable per se. But, um, I think they're by and large, when when an entrepreneur asks themselves this question, like, A, they should understand the trade-offs and then understand that at the end of the day, those trade-offs are imperfect. And so you sort of make a decision and then approach, especially seed funding. I think there's a nuance to who you take it from. Obviously, I'm talking my own book here, but I think there's um, patient capital. There's capital that'll help you maintain optionality. And then there's capital that, Will really sort of have only one definition of success, and that doesn't just mean because they're a large fund. Some of the smallest funds have that same mentality because they need the write-up, they need the markup, they need you to sort of stay hot because that's what they're going to raise their next their next fund off of. You are a vessel for their hopes and dreams, and so try as best you can, no matter what stage, to sort of know that you're getting you you're you're getting a business with people. Like yes, it's a firm, yes, it's dollars, but at the end of the day, it's it's a personal relationship. And what I sort of tell our founders is, I will never, you know, I will never ask you to take money from somebody you don't want to be business with, with be in business with, right? And so, if you're ever at a point where it's challenging and you sort of have this last resort, but like it just doesn't feel good, like let's talk about that. And the flip side, like if the highest term sheet in a competitive round is coming from somebody you don't feel good about, like let's use that to get the best terms you can from the people you want to work with. But you know, to never the hardest thing to undo is a is a bad investor who's in the first few lines on your cap table from an from ownership percentage. And so let's guard against that. If you can guard against that then, and you can have honest, open relationships with your investors, like we can figure out and solve for most problems. And then each company will find, like, find its natural footing. Like I have companies that I thought could be multi-billion dollar companies and they exited earlier for reasons that were like very germane to the founders and the team. And like, that's fine. Like that's what yeah. they meant to be. And then we have others that like, I'm surprised the founders didn't take an early exit because some of those opportunities were fantastic, but they pushed on because they knew it was going to be a special opportunity to build something that could outstrip even their vision for what the company had the potential to become and that when were they ever going to have that chance again? And so I think those are the types of discussions that when you've built sort of trust with founders and maintain context too, you're not just parachuting in four times a year for board meetings, looking through a deck and asking some pointed questions about like, Why are CAC costs going up? Like you have to really understand that business. You're able to give that advice. But at the end of the day, you know, we're small investors by the time a company is is pretty large. We look and feel more like common shares than preferred shares. And so we're just trying to help founders build the best version of what they're going to become. We can't, we can't, um, you know, turn it into a great company for them, nor can we tell them what to do. We just have to help them become the best version of themselves.
0: Yeah, you both made a great point, especially the point on people, because I think in the grand scheme of things, it can be very easy for people to lose track with all the brands and companies and how large it is and the dollar map behind them. At the end of the day, it's a group of people working together to build something out of nothing. And I think it's more than, and as you mentioned, Kate, it's more than just the money, but the people involved and the people you're partnering with. But over the years that you guys have been investing in, I've talking to Chris Yeh the other day on patterns he's experienced as a VC and I was wondering what patterns you each have been picking up in the VC space and the benefits and negatives of being in venture for a long time.
1: Kate's been a VC longer than I have, so I'm going to let her know.
2: <laughs> Pattern recognition is an interesting thing because as Hunter was referencing before, it can serve you well and it can also be a negative bias. So you have to be really careful about how you're applying it. And I think... The way Hunter described technology hitting a certain sector and what does that do, there is pattern recognition of the incumbent and also Rand affected. But you have to really, I think, pull out and have a very large view of where there's shifts and disconnects happening. Ultimately, I think the pattern recognition I adhere to in a lot of cases, and this is where generalist fund, so I apply this across sectors, is understanding the workarounds that are already existing. There's human behavior behind everything. And so what's that human behavior tendency? And can that be blown out into something much larger? I think I I really like going sort of very granular and very macro on almost everything I do, whether it's fund operations or like analyzing a company. So I look at market trends and sector trends and trends that entrepreneurs and human behavior, like all of that together to try to see if there's some linkage between. And candidly, I think Hunter touched on this too is like, are we interested in it? Just because it's happening, also like we all we often evaluate it. Hannah Gray, do we have the right network to support this company? Do we understand? Because I think we are at a crucial stage where we're putting in five hundred k to a million into an early stage company. That means they're also not taking five hundred k to a million from someone else who may have a better network. So are we going to stay engaged for that 24 month period that they're likely in our sort of strike zone? And so I'd say that's how we think about pattern recognition and engagement, but there's certainly trends from that pattern recognition that we are blowing out sort of in every quarter, but that's just kind of the running, I don't know, identification I have in my brain around it.
1: Yeah. The way we think about it sometimes is what things do we care about or believe more than the average seed investor? Because other everyone like there's some set of beliefs or traits or characteristics and opportunities that are very consensus and like, fine. in those deals, you just sort of have to win them. Right. But a lot of the best investments are sort of more non-consensus. It's where you believe something more than other people, or you all perceive the same risk, but you believe it's a risk that you can. And so I guess I'll I'll sort of give three quick examples, One one in people, one in market, and one in process. In people, I think we, we care a lot about resilience and grit and determination. There's a lot of very, very smart folks who've been protected from failure or been lucky enough to go to a great yeah. school, work at a great first company. And the truth is that like most things in a startup don't work exactly the way you think they are. So can you take a punch and get back up? Like how much do you care about this? Are you resilient in the face of criticism? Are you resilient in the face of challenges like that type of stuff? And so we, we, that's one of the things we focus on a lot when we're trying to get to know somebody. From a market standpoint, I love markets where the problem is larger than the TAM. And the the, uh, currently understood where the problem is large, urgent and valuable, but the TAM lags the problem size and problem value. So you see that a lot in some of like the vertical B2B spaces where you look and you'd say like, well, software spend in this market is like a hundred million dollars. That's not a big industry. If even if they got a hundred percent of it, like that would be a ceiling for them. And you're like, yeah, but that hundred that hundred million dollars like represents five percent of the value of this problem because it's old V1 enterprise software still sold on CD ROMs. Like 95% of this of this TAM is still in spreadsheets, faxes, emails. Like yeah. if you build a high if you build like a high quality collaborative SaaS, like they're actually like they're gonna they're gonna raise the ceiling on this. Like I love those businesses. And then from a process standpoint, Sachin, I always at any given time try to take like one or two things that we think we're not doing well and do them better. I think with the mantra that like if you're generally good at this job, um, the difference between a like a good fund and a great fund is one better decision, right? Like we could yeah. just continue to run as is, and I think we'd be fine. But if you want to really be exceptional, it really comes down to like well, instead of like two multi-billion-dollar companies, we hit three that out of 30 that fun type of thing. And so we try to pick one or two things that we sort of have enough data on to say like, this is repeatable. This is something we don't do as well as we could. And this is something that we think we can fix. So for an example, very often, and I'm sure Kate and Jessica have the same thing, like one of the best quote unquote privileged deal flow you have is people you used to work with or knew coming and like, hey, I'm starting something. You want to talk, right? You're often seeing them early in the process. You have a lot of sense of who they are and if you can get to conviction pretty quickly you can usually win that deal before it goes goes all the way in that inc- in that situation especially when you're busy and one of you is one of the partners is taking first meetings like the natural inclination i think is for the person who knows that founder the best to take the meeting oh this is somebody who was on my team a former coworker hunter will meet with them and what we found was we were actually coming away with too many false negatives we found that the partner who knew them best was sometimes having a challenge they almost knew too much. They were having a challenge updating their view of that person from like the 23-year-old sort of associate product manager or the executive who did okay, but like ultimately for the story of why they really left that company. And so we were sort of passing with with on that. And and again, in some cases, we were quote unquote right from an investment perspective, but you look and you're like, oh, there's a few that we should have taken that at least to the next stage. And so what we decided to do on that going forward was either doing those together Or flipping it so where the person who doesn't have the relationship takes the first meeting to get the sort of most basic, naive view of what this is. And then you can combine that with the other person's understanding of who this person is. So, like, in my mind, if you, every year, every fund cycle, as a a manager of a firm, pick, like, one or two things that are repeatable, that if you do a better job of the next fund cycle, it increases the probability you're going to get one or two better investments. In, in that fund versus the last fund, this all assumes that like your, your model works, you're relatively good at it. Like if you're not good at this job, like you have, you have bigger problems, but like the difference between a 4X fund, a 7X fund and a 10X fund is one or two more of getting something right. And so that's kind of how we think about what do we care about more than other investors when it comes to looking at these companies initially, like market and people, and then what from our process whether it's blind spots, whether it's things we have to unlearn, or whether it's just improvements upon sort of that see, pick, win deal flow funnel, how do we strive for excellence? And I think this is frankly where like the operator's mentality that we all bring to this comes into play, because from a product management perspective, you don't wait three, five, seven years to figure out how to make your product better. And so while ultimately each fund is going to be judged by a number, what was your return? And you'll know that number in 10 to 12 years, like If you wait 10 to 12 years to improve what you're doing based upon that outcome, you're going to be out of business because you're, or you're going to be getting worse at what you do, you're not better at it.
0: Totally. And to wrap it up here, over the years of investing, you both have seen quite a number of pitches. What has been the most memorable pitch? And I noticed, Hunter, you talked about the person who was driving in the self-driving car and decided to just let go of everything. But what was the most memorable pitches for each of you? I was going to
1: say, I'll give one most memorable to the upside and one most memorable to my embarrassment. So I think I already shared the one to the upside. Kyle from Cruise, like, Basically, there's a few companies we've always we've invested on primarily because of a password-protected video. And so, like my new rule of thumb is if somebody sends you an incredible like product demo that's password-protected an early stage, like basically invest. So the most embarrassing one for me was like I, I'm looking at things. I, I tend to look at people's first names, not last names, so and so forth. I'm sitting here with two founders. Uh, this is a few years ago, and we're going through this whole thing. They're really interesting. They got referred to us via a mutual connection who we think is a very good judge of talent. And at the end of the meeting, I like one thing we didn't cover is how do you two know each other. They sort of looked at each other, and one sort of pointed the other and said, "Well, I've known him his whole life." And I said, "Well, that must be an interesting story." And they said, "You don't get that we're brothers." And I was like, <laughs> you're brothers?" I was like, "I don't know. You're two white dudes. You kind of look alike, but like, it's not like you're twins or something." And so we had a good laugh over that. I've st- we we actually didn't we didn't invest not because of that, but like they they've done great. We've stayed in touch, and 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 yeah. So it's it's and I think they probably retold that story even more times than than I did.
2: <laughs> Brutal. I love it. I'd say our my most memorable one is probably just it's early cemented in my brain, and I think this goes to the sort of showing versus telling. But yeah, Andrew Cortina created Venmo and like was like, I have something to show you, and like texted me five dollars, But I was like, and this was two thousand nine, and I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, and it was just a moment in time where it just it, it all of a sudden started making sense, and the fact that he had already built it, had some rails, and and was just trying to kind of make sense of what to call it, how to, but the use case was there and it was really fun. And I think that that touches on the consent, the consumer surprise and delight that just, I I immediately wanted to like run over and show everyone I knew and like text. And and I think that also speaks to the staying power and virality of it still existing today. Yeah. I mean, and uh, gosh, there's there's plenty of negative ones, but I, I think it also just comes down to I feel Hunter on this because there's so many meetings where either I wasn't prepared and I didn't get to read everything I wanted to. And yeah, a husband and wife team I didn't put together or something to that regard. Or or the same thing goes on the entrepreneur side, right? We talked about this before, like not enough time and research to just understand who we're meeting because we're all so busy every day. And I remember this wonderful company was basically like pitching me something in ad tech, but had no understanding of what my previous portfolio was and who I had backed. And so they were sort of trying to explain to me this whole sector. And I was like, can I just, I I know it all already. Like I'm with you. And so it was just sort of a waste of time. So I'd say that was kind of
1: sad. Sometimes when you get operating crews, you also get, I mean, look, founders have a hard job. You sometimes get people who are telling you stories that aren't real, right? Like I'm like, and then we were talking with like YouTube was gonna da da da, and I'm like, I'm like, just before we go further, just so you're like that person worked for me, so like make sure you're telling me the like like I, I don't remember exactly the same way, but you know like that type of stuff, and so I, it just goes to I mean maybe something to end on. I, I think basically whether you're on the venture side of the table or the founder side of the table, like good decisions, good outcomes. They're sometimes paired together, they're sometimes occur separately, but the best muscle memory you can create is good decision, good decision, good decision. Because some of those will also be good outcomes and in wonderful power law, whether you're a founder, an early employee, a VC, like if you make enough good decisions, some of those will be good outcomes and those good outcomes will be enough to build a career on. The way that you screw yourself up, I think is not focusing enough on making good decisions, right? And by compromising your values or ethics. If, you know, Both, if if you avoid both of those and you want to spend a career in tech, no matter which side of the table you're on, I think you're going to have like a a very rewarding, very profitable, very exciting life. And so I think along the way, we all just try to pause and and consider ourselves lucky for the the job we get to do, the privilege of talking to founders every day and the opportunity to succeed alongside them. The other joke I always make is like, look, when I'm 75 sitting in a, a rocking chair on a porch, I'm not going to be thinking about the IRR of homebrew. I'm going to be thinking about right. the people and the relationships we got to create. And then I pause for a second. I say, the rocket. don't worry, the porch that the, and the house that the rocking chair is sitting on will be a very nice house that the IR paid for, but I won't be thinking about that. I'll be thinking about the people. And so if I could give any advice to founders, especially early on when you're taking money, I'd be like, your investors should be neutral to positive. If you don't like them or get freaked out during the investment raising process. It's not going to get better once the deal closes. And so be willing to walk away from capital that you don't want to be in business with. And, and then hold hold your investors accountable to delivering the the value, the results, the time and effort that they promised you when they were trying to win the deal. If they worked harder to win the deal than they did to service the deal, that's not a good investor. And if we're on the same cap table together, you let me know because I'll talk to them.
0: Totally agree. I think uh, keeping your ethics at the forefront along with a couple other things is super important, especially when being a founder and a VC. Well, thank you both Hunter and Kate for taking the time to join the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you here today and uh, I look forward to having you back in the future.
2: Thank you so much.